The Thought Lounge podcast is sponsored by Willow, a social networking app powered by open, honest conversation. Willow is a space where people can connect to local communities, individuals, and the world at large through open-minded conversations. You can download Willow for free on the iTunes App Store today. Welcome to the Thought Lounge podcast. You're listening to the third episode of our We Need to Talk series, which is about conflicting perspectives presented side by side with the utmost respect for one another. For a full bio of each guest and for more on the format and philosophy of the We Need to Talk series, listen to the first couple of minutes of the first episode of this series on bias and leadership. In this episode, our guests will be answering a question on prison systems presented by Justin Brooks, the director and co-founder of the California Innocence Project. His question was, what role, if any, should victims and their families play in the criminal justice system? Should they be allowed to testify at sentencings about the impact the crime has had on their individual lives? How do you think being a victim of a crime might change your beliefs? First up to answer this question is Justin. Enjoy! Yeah, so this is a question I've thought about for 25 years, practicing criminal law, as to you know what role is a victim within that criminal justice system? Because in the United States, we basically have two separate systems to govern our behavior, to regulate our behavior. There's a criminal system and there's a civil system. And the civil system is where people sue each other for bad acts they've done to them. Or they develop contracts to contract their behavior and say, you're going to act this way. If you don't act this way, I'm going to go to court and sue you. So we regulate human behavior kind of with these two systems. Um, and there's benefits and there's positives and negatives with both systems. You know, for instance, the civil system acts very slowly, takes you years to sue somebody, years to enforce a contract, whereas the criminal system acts very quickly. We've got police officers roaming around enforcing criminal laws. So there's an immediate, you know, action reaction to that where there isn't in the civil system. But but the system is set up that crimes are against society. And the civil system is for when people do things to people. That's when you're suing another person. Yet when you go to court, criminal court, it's the government versus you. So the question then is, if it's the government versus me, what role does a victim have in this? And in fact, we have what we call, you know, victimless crimes. Or we may have a crime like statutory rape, where in some states, if two kids who are 17 have sex with each other, they both have committed a crime. So the really, the victim is the state, not the individual. They actually both can be prosecuted for rape. And they can't say it's consensual, because in a lot of states, if you're under 18, you can't consent to rape. So it raises this question as to what is a victim you know, in the criminal justice system, and then what role should they play? So should we just in those particular types of crimes where we have this concrete victim in front of us say, okay, you're going to play a role, you're going to come into the court, you're going to tell them how bad this was, when we have all these other crimes where there's no one there to voice that? You know, if it's a drug crime, do we start bringing in people who were victims of drug crimes that have nothing to do with this drug crime or to come in and say how bad drugs are and how they ruined people's lives? Would we accept that kind of testimony? And where it's become very vivid to me is when I do death penalty cases, because in death penalty cases, they have these bifurcated trials 
where you have first a guilt innocence phase and then you have the death penalty phase. And during the death penalty phase, victims come in to testify about why this person should be executed. So you'll get the family members of the murder victim who'll come in and say, you know, this was a wonderful dad, this was a wonderful son, this was a really important person, and that's why this person should be executed. And when you're a lawyer in that process, like when I've sat there in a courtroom and had to get up and cross-examine a victim's family member, you know, I, I had this case in Chicago where my client had been convicted in this double murder and it was of two gang members and these gang members mothers came into court to testify and they're crying and they're really sad and they're talking about how they lost their sons and you know 21 and 23 year old kids that got murdered and I sat there with a lot of empathy for them but then I as a lawyer had to get up and say things like ma'am are you aware that your son is a member of the Latin Kings Ma'am, are you aware that your son has also been implicated in several homicides? Ma'am, can you tell me why your son was having sexual relations with a 15-year-old girl in a men's room on a midnight on a Wednesday in a park? So I've got to go through all these horrible things to in front of the jury say, hey, actually, this guy wasn't a great guy after she says what a great guy he is. And I felt terrible doing that because I don't think either one of us should be doing that. I don't think she should be allowed to testify to say how wonderful he is. And I don't think I should have to be put in the role of having to say he's not that wonderful. It should just be a human life was taken and we put equal value on a human life. Because if it had been a homeless person that had been killed and then nobody shows up to talk about him, now all of a sudden his life is worth less <clears throat> because he doesn't have family members that can testify on his behalf. So I'm very sympathetic to the notion that people have that victims should have their moment um, this affected them a great deal. They should be able to speak out in court about it. They should be able to confront um, the people who ruined their lives. It's not that I'm not sympathetic to that because I've spent, again, years sitting in courtrooms witnessing this. But when I step back from it and I really think about what's the purpose of our criminal justice system, it's not supposed to be to extract vengeance on behalf of this victim. It's supposed to be you broke the laws of our society, and now we're going to, without emotion, give you the punishment that's appropriate to that. And if you want to extract your pound of flesh as a victim, what you need to go is sue them in civil court. And that's why we have wrongful death suits, where people can actually sue. Um, and probably the most famous example of that is the O.J. Simpson case, where it went to a trial. He was tried for murder. He was ultimately acquitted. And yet the family were still able to go into civil court and actually made a finding of responsibility. And he was found a, I guess, a civil manslaughterer. And they got damages for that. And that's a, just a clear example of like there is two processes, a criminal one and a civil one. So I think there's this sort of knee-jerk emotional response that immediately want to say, yes, of course, victims should be a part of this. Yes, of course, their voice should be heard. Yes, of course, they're the ones who suffered the most. But really, it goes against the basic principles of the system and how it was set up. There's no way to ever make our criminal justice system perfect. There's no way to make it unbiased. Um, race plays a role. Poverty plays a role. All these things get impacted. 
Um, for example, when, when people would say to me when I was practicing in Washington, D.C., they, they'd say that the system isn't racist. I'd say, pick up the Washington Post and take a look at it. Because every day there's a black kid killed in D.C. and it's in the metro section. And whenever a white person is killed, it's in the front section of the paper. And it kind of starts there that it's bigger news when a white person is killed. And when it's bigger news, it becomes a bigger case. And then it becomes more pressure to go for a heavier sentence. And that's why now studies have shown that race of the victim is the number one determining factor in a death penalty case, not heinousness of the crime, which is what it should be, but not race of the person who committed the crime, but race of the victim. So in other words, when you kill white people, you're much more likely to get the death penalty. So I think what we need to try to do, though, is to try minimize these kinds of things that turn this into an unemotional turn this into an emotional process and an emotional decision. And I think the biggest challenge the U.S. faces is juries. Um, I, I practiced law and have worked with um, innocence projects throughout the world, and jury systems are very unusual. So in most of the world, when you're in court, it's a judge, and it does end up being a less emotional process. Attorneys know that they can't play to judges the way they do juries. They know they're not going to be manipulated the way that juries can be manipulated. But the downside of that is, of course, huge. Now you just have this one guy making this decision. They get very jaded. They, they get very politicized. Some of them run for election. They get appointed. So there, there aren't any easy answers to this in terms of making the system work well and fair but I think one of them we really should think hard about that we could do something about is taking these victim impact statements out of the system. And that's a very unpopular opinion to hold. But I think ultimately, if you really just step back and say, hey, is it really fair if a guy drives down the street and he shoots somebody that he doesn't know on the street and it's a horrible act, but he doesn't know this person at all, does it make any sense that he's going to get a greater sentence because that person has a family? Does it make sense that he's going to get a greater sentence because that guy's the president of a bank? It, in the moral sense, it's no different than if that was a homeless person. But we've set a system up that's going to have a different result based on who that person is. And that's just fundamentally not right. Especially and these that, are things people yeah. don't think about. I don't think they've been in that situation. Like I always say when I'm talking about death penalty, people will say, well, you know, if you were a victim of a violent crime, you might think differently. And I think, yeah, if you sat in a jail cell on death row holding the hand of a 21-year-old girl who was innocent, you'd think differently, too. <laughs> you had 50 days left yeah. till execution. I mean, we all think different based on our life experiences. Mm -hmm. That's maybe also the second part of that when I say, would you think differently as a victim? <laughs> I mean, that is what that comes down to. Of course, you would think differently as a victim, mm -hmm. because as a victim, you're inherently, you know, biased. That's why one thing that's always troubled me, particularly with Democrats, in how they've dealt with the death penalty question, is whenever they're asked, would you favor the death penalty if your wife was killed, if your children were killed, if your family was killed? And they always give really wishy-washy answers to it. And I think the answer is very clear. Absolutely. I would certainly be in favor of the death penalty. I would want that person right. dead. Right. should just be honest and say that. And then the follow-up is, that's why they wouldn't put me on the jury. Because I would be completely biased. Because this person killed my family member. So I'm not fit to be unbiased. So you're asking me a question that's to put me in an actual biased position where I'm not going to have a reasonable answer. Because nobody is a reasonable person who goes through that and how they respond to it. You're a human being. You're going to have a human response. 
So I would just love it if these presidential candidates that are against the death penalty and everyone against the death penalty would just be honest about it and say, absolutely, I want that person dead. And you shouldn't listen to me because I'll be really upset <laughs> and really irrational. And a government shouldn't act like an irrational parent. A government shouldn't act like an irrational loved one. A government should act without emotion and with fairness as best it can. And if the system is set up just purely on emotion, emotional responses. I mean, that's why we have manslaughter, by the way. I, I, when I teach it to my students, I say the only reason we have this thing called voluntary manslaughter, which actually sounds like an oxymoron because manslaughter is supposed to be an unintentional killing. But voluntary means it's intentional and it's an intentional killing that we're not going to make murder. But the reason we make it not murder is we say you shouldn't have done this. But we understand. <laughs> we don't condone, but we understand. You walked in your house. You saw your best friend having sex with your wife. You killed them both. We're not condoning that, but we understand. <laughs> and that's what voluntary manslaughter is. And it's an idea of saying, like, we can treat your emotions. We can put them in a certain box, but we can't just say, like, that's fine. Right. No problem. Right. And so, yeah, you have to have rules. You have to have... And they have to be done as impartial as you possibly can make them. And this thing really muddies that because mm -hmm. it brings a whole level of emotion into it. We probably have the most emotional justice system in the world. Really? Yeah. I think we probably do. That's a bold <laughs> statement. But I've sat in court in, in Britain, for example, and Britain has a jury system. But the way their barristers all hang out with each other and go to the clubs together and they switch sides between prosecution and defense... They're nowhere near as vested as like American lawyers where mm. they see the prosecutor as the enemy and the prosecutors see the defense as an enemy and it's a big game and it's all emotion driven and you have the jury there playing out in it. We we've and, and Americans, I think, just by nature, we love theater and movies and drama. And so we have these very dramatic trials <laughs> and we televise them and people are copying what they've seen on TV and in movies. And that all that emotion can muddy the truth. The truth can get lost in that. That was Justin Brooks on what role, if any, victims and their families should play in the criminal justice system. Next up answering this question is Lori Solpizio. I mean, I, I do think they should be a part of it, especially if we're looking at approaching something kind of more holistically. I think they provide a perspective. I mean, they might even provide um, kind of evidence or data about their family member. I mean, you know, so I feel like saying no, they shouldn't be a part of it because of emotion. Um, which I'm assuming would be because sort of the emotional involvement they have is number one, negating emotion, which we have a tendency to overdo anyway, right? In our country, we don't want to kind of bring in emotion. We don't see it as a valuable tool. We don't see it as data. We don't see it as a resource. And I think it, it really can be. Um, and they might have information. You know? So um, aside from that part, emotion and information that they might offer, I think this holistic perspective in terms of they are, they were impacted. I mean, they are impacted by whatever event is occurred and, and what's being tried. Um, and so to totally eliminate them feels a little unfair, not just to them, but to the victim and to the whole process that I think a more holistic, integrated process, the better in every kind of context. So um, I would certainly think that they need to be and should be allowed to be a part of it. And then there's boundaries, you know, right? That's where then the system and the lawyers and the judge can find those boundaries and put them, you know, kind of in in enact them on maybe what they hear, don't hear, what they offer, don't offer. Um, that's where the boundaries of, this, of the, 
you know, kind of system can come into place, but to eliminate them feels a little unfair. That was Laurie Sulpizio. Next up is Mauro Cifuentes answering what role, if any, should victims and their families play in the criminal justice system? Yeah, this is a really challenging question because I think that, I think that, you know, families, you know, who have, you know, number one, undergone or, you know, victims and their families. I think that anyone who has experienced a crime, you know, that impacts their life, right? Their ability to go to work, their ability to, you know, take care of the people in their lives, you know, their ability to, you know, take care of themselves in some ways, um, you know, obviously should have a role in that. Um, Because you know, those are the people who are most immediately impacted by something. And I think that it's unfortunate that sometimes prosecutors use that in their own interests rather than actually providing any kind of meaningful retribution for those family members. I think that, you know, it gets used to just, you know, fuel this this criminal justice system and locking people up rather than actually you know, getting people the things that they need. You know, what if those people, you know, testifying wasn't just about, you know, locking someone up for longer or giving them a capital sentence, but it was also about like, okay, well, what forms of support do these people then need in order to move forward with their lives after having experienced this crime? And I think that a lot of what the criminal justice system does is it pits people from similar communities experiencing similar kinds of stresses against one another. You know, and I think that oftentimes people who are victims of crime and people who commit crime often come from the same neighborhoods, the same communities. And so it seems like there are bigger issues that need to be addressed around what creates a context where people are more likely to be harmed and that there are people who harm them when nobody in this context necessarily has what they need. You know, so I'm thinking predominantly about like low income and communities of color where a lot of these forms of, you know, violence happen where there are homicides where there are where there's gang violence where there's gun violence where there are you know people get jumped where homes get broken into you know all these different kinds of things and that people are largely you know victimized by people in their own community so i do think that they should definitely play a role but i don't think the role should be to provide more fodder for prosecutors the role should be to begin reconfiguring what the justice system looks like so that there's less focus on targeting an individual to blame and lock up or kill and more resources spent on addressing how people have been harmed and helping them get the resources they need to move through with their lives in addition to also giving this person who has been violent you know a re-education different kinds of opportunities and yeah that's that's how i would think you know of that role and i don't know if that's possible in this present moment but i can i can i can imagine I can I think I think I should be free to imagine a little bit about that and I think that you know being a victim of a crime would change my beliefs um I, I was a, a 
I guess a victim, a survivor, however you want to call it, of uh, a hit and run accident. A car um, ran into me on my bike and broke my arm really badly during a time when I was um, doing lots of, you know, minimum wage jobs, like piecing together an income. And I wasn't able to work for an entire month. And not working for an entire month when you don't have benefits means that, you know, you have bills that are piling up and no income coming in and not just bills that are piling up, but now you have medical expenses that you don't have insurance for because you work part-time jobs. And everybody would ask me, you know, why I didn't do more to find that person, why I didn't go and try to find video cameras that had recorded it. You know, people were blaming me for letting this person get away with it. And at the end of the day, the only thing I could think of to say is like, well, if this person is in a situation such that they hit someone with their car in a way that they knew they did bodily damage and drove away, that tells me that whatever is going on in that person's life is that they were scared, that they were scared of what was going to happen because they didn't have enough together to be able to stop and take responsibility for what had happened. And that that made me really sad that people are so scared when they hurt people, you know, of the legal consequences that they can't kind of, you know, acknowledge that they've done something. Um, And so that definitely shapes my perspective of wanting to attend more to what someone who is a victim of crime experiences rather than going after the people who did it. That was Mauro Cifuentes. Last up is Brian Kim on what role, if any, should victims and their families play in the criminal justice system? Uh, I think um, revenge is kind of implied in these questions. Um, this, the desire is to see the accused punished. Um, and I, I'm not sure that, that that should have a place in our justice system. Um, there was, what was the case with the um, affluenza teen? Do you remember that? So I think there was this teenager, was it Texas, who got, um, who was drunk driving and, and I think he, he may have killed someone. And his lawyer argued that he suffered from affluenza which was that his, because of his privilege, his upbringing, do you know what I'm talking about? So because of his upbringing, his privilege, he didn't have, um, he didn't have a, a, a sober measure of his consequences, a, a real measure of his consequences. And so I think he was, he was let off. Um, I'm not, I'm not too, I didn't follow up on the case, but but I, I mean, I think I think that honestly, I, I don't think that I'm not against that ruling. I mean, so many people were outraged by it, but honestly, I, I mean, I think it's true. I think that when you, I think I'm more I'm more willing to to have a, um, an attitude of forgiveness in our in our penal system. Um, and I think that um, a lot of people wanted to see 
that team be be tried and, and punished. But what would what would that have done? It, it would have just punished him. It, this kid who has you know who's an idiot. And and that that's revenge, right? Wanting to see that kid be punished. But ultimately, you know. I think I think that I think revenge. I, I guess my answer is that revenge revenge shouldn't play a part in wanting to see someone be punished. If if someone's going to be punished, it should be because that person, if not punished, might go out and do the same thing. Um, but I guess that could be said for affluenza team. Right. You know, is he going to go out again? If, he, if he's not punished, is he going to think about, reflect on the consequences of his action? Who knows? Um, so I guess that, that's not really... That it's, it's, it's pretty gray in that sense. That was Justin Brooks, Brian Kim, Mauro Cifuentes, and Loris Sulpizio on what role, if any, should victims and their families play in the criminal justice system. The poser of this question today was Justin. After my interview with him, I asked him what the corniest joke he knows is. He told me this, and just for reference, Heidi is Justin's wonderful wife. The corniest joke I know is one that Heidi tells all the time. And what is it's called? It's uh, what is a Russian uh, soda thief? And it's knock a can of pop off. Next week's question is presented by Mauro Cifuentes, a youth program manager at a domestic violence nonprofit in the Bay Area. He asks a question on the root causes of sexual violence and the effectiveness of ways in which we treat the individuals who commit acts of sexual violence. Thank you for listening to this episode of the We Need to Talk series, conflicting perspectives presented side by side with the utmost respect for one another. Our mission is to foster the practice of intentional, in-person dialogue within ourselves and our communities, in which we listen to each person as if they're the most important person in the world, suspend initial judgment, recognize that creative conflict is good, speak authentically, and practice equity of voice. For more information or to print out a wallet-sized version of the Five Agreements of Dialogue, visit thoughtlounge.org forward slash podcast. And until next time, good thinking always.